0: There's a lot to get to on Boston Loose Baseball episode 79. The sports tragedy of Stone Garrett's injury on the field at Yankee Stadium. That was awful to see. And then a day later, the Nationals take a series from the Yankees on Thursday. And we find out Steven Strasburg's retiring. Plus an update on some of the top prospects in the minor leagues. All of that coming up on Boston Loose Baseball episode 79. It starts
1: right now.
0: This is Bustin' Loose Baseball, episode 79. I'm Grant Paulson, joined as always by my pal, Toby Altizer. I think we've got to start probably with the Steven Strasburg news, and then we'll get to more relevant 2023 Nationals items. But Strasburg retiring, broken in the Washington Post on Thursday afternoon, right around 2 o'clock. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, we kind of knew this was going to come at some point.
2: It's just sad, though, the way that his career ended because He's a guy that's a legend, and I heard your take on your show, Grant and Danny, talking about him being arguably the most important or most influential national. And I think it's true because, you know, when you think about the Nationals franchise and think about them coming back in 2005, really until June 18th or June 8th, I say 18th because I was at that game, June 8th, 2010. There aren't that many memories. There's a couple Zimmerman home runs that people remember in Zimmerman's Mr. National, so I understand the love for him. But in terms of bringing notoriety back to baseball in D.C., there's no one that did more of that than Steven Strasburg. And so for him to go from a guy that had the debut with 14 strikeouts to then becoming the, the all-star pitcher to then becoming a World Series MVP and seeing his evolution over those nine years, it was really special. It really just sucks though to see it end the way that he did. And just more so on the human side, you really hope that at some point Strauss can get, you know, whether it's a surgery or it's just time away, whatever it is, get back to a normal life. Because I don't want to have a guy that's a Nationals legend and he put it all on the line so much so that the guy can't even just throw a football in the backyard with his kids or something like that. So you hope for him that everything can get back to normal at some point. But Really thankful for his time with the Nationals. It's just kind of sad seeing the news that it's officially done. We'll never see 37 on the mound again.
0: Yeah, for me, this is kind of three-pronged, right? It's the Steven Strasberg living his life moving forward element. It is the contract having been a disaster, and it is his legacy with the Nationals, right? So one by one, first one to get out of the way pretty quickly, as you said. I am really, really sad whenever I see the details in the post and otherwise of his current living status and how much pain he's in and that it's hard for him to sleep other than in a one specific position at times and standing up for too long is problematic. And as you said, just menial, normal tasks, things that you and I do every day and never think about have become problems at times for him over the last couple of years with this thoracic outlet procedure that he had and the lingering issues I, I want the guy to have a normal life he deserves that he's 35 years old he's a legend as far as the nats go he's an icon for sports in washington dc He brought this city a, a world series title as the world series mvp and uh, it, it's sad to me to think about the possibility of the second half of plus of his life he's in shape and uh, unlike me he's not a fat disaster so he'll probably leave uh live beyond 70 uh, but you just want him to be able to do the normal stuff that you do with your kids. As a father with a four-year-old, a two year old, and a baby. Like it's the, the best part of my day every day is, is that moment you have where you're dancing with your daughter or your, your son's playing Spider-Man with you and you know, kicking you in the stomach and you're trying to tackle him or whatever. So I want him to be able to do all that stuff. Uh, set that aside. Second part then would be I guess the the contract part of it. And there's no way around this. I mean, the seven-year, $245 million contract that they signed Steven Strasburg to uh, ended up being a disaster. I think it's a little bit revisionist history now for everyone to go back and say they never should have done it. You know, that was so stupid. Look at his age. Look at his injury history. If you remember at that time, he was coming off of a year where he didn't miss a start, where he pitched in 200 innings. Uh, He was coming off of one of the great postseason runs in recent history. And after leading the major leagues in wins and in innings and having a dynamite postseason as the number five finisher in Cy Young balloting, uh, they weren't re-signing Anthony Rendon, who wanted it out. And so it was either kind of you let Rendon walk and Strasburg walk, or you pay Stras. And so they went the route of giving him 245 over seven. Now, I'm here to tell you again, Toby, I'll double down. It's a terrible contract. It'll go down as one of the worst contracts ever. He pitched 30 innings after that there's really no other way around it. Uh, He pitched eight times. He had two starts in 2020, five starts in 2021 and one start in 2022. So there's no reason to call it anything other than one of the worst contracts of all time, not his fault. I mean, his body broke down on him. It's it's not like he just decided to reel it in and stop competing and didn't want to be out on the field. I mean, he's as much a victim at the end of his body, abandoning him as the nationals, are of of having to pay him and getting nothing for it. On the contract, we can talk more about the legacy in a second. Uh, I guess my last thing on that would be, I have always heard from the people that I talk to around the organization that that was more of a Ted Lerner, Scott Boris thing. They have a great relationship or had a great relationship. And you know Ted Lerner and uh, at times Boris would stay at his house and they would get deals done occasionally together with and without the front office. But I think that was one of those deals where Owners sometimes have favorite players. I think Lerner really, really wanted Strauss to retire a national. Strauss obviously had interest. I'm not sure that he was getting seven and 245 anywhere anyway. Um, And so I don't know if that's a deal that you hang on this front office or like the baseball people and say, what were you thinking? I think that was one of those lifetime achievements. The owner and the agent get together and, and work something out. Could be wrong, but that's the way I always heard it. But it obviously didn't work out. I'm not saying that the Rendon deal I wanted which was seven and 245, the same deal Straska. And I would have given that to Rondon in a heartbeat. And that would have been a, a horrific deal as well. You want to talk that that's almost as bad a contract as the Strasbourg contract, because he's done nothing for the angels. So those yeah, are my I mean, thoughts on the first two categories before I get into the legacy.
2: It's tough with the contract thing, because like you said, revision is history. You can just go back to after the world series and say, okay, they won you the world series adios. But if you were to go back in time and actually live through that, the idea that the Nationals could win the World Series and arguably the two most important players on that run, Rendon and Strasbourg, you're just going to let both of them walk without paying either of them. Like, I, I get that you can't necessarily make moves as a front office. You know, if they were to have made that decision, like you laid out, it probably was just an ownership decision, which in that case, you can't really do anything about it. But even if the front office had to say, I know you can't necessarily make moves on what the public reaction is going to be. But could you imagine the public reaction around Major League Baseball, around the Nationals fan base, if after 2019 both of those guys would have just been let go? Like the the fact is, people would have rioted, and so they ended up keeping Strasburg and ended up not working out. The right move would have been to let both of those guys walk, which is crazy to think about when you think back to that time and how coveted both of those guys were. It, it's just it's an odd spot to be in. You feel bad for Stras. I played a clip when I was hosting Overtime after your show on Thursday on 106.7 The Fan, and basically it was after the World Series, and he talked about the highs and the lows, and he said, you know, I learned that I can kind of only control what I can control. I can go out there, I can go through the process, and sometimes it's going to be good, sometimes it's going to be bad. And I think that is Strasburg's career. He can kind of control what he can control, and when he was able to be on the mound and able to go out there if his body allowed him, He was a dominant pitcher. The problem was a lot of the stuff that he couldn't control, like his health, like Tommy John surgery, like thoracic outlet syndrome. There was nothing you could do about that. You can do as much possible to make sure you limit those things and try to keep yourself in the best shape possible. But sometimes your body just breaks down when you're throwing a hundred miles an hour, when you're throwing as many pitches as he did. And that's what happened to him. So you know, I think when you look at the contract, obviously it's going to be something that gets discussed all the time when we talk about some of the worst contracts in baseball, which is unfortunate for Strass, but it's the reality of things. But at the same point, if you were to go back, it's tough to say that that was the wrong move at the time to make. And maybe it's something that's, they regret but at the same point grant this is a point i brought up when you think about the nationals as a franchise a team that came back in 2005 it didn't have a whole lot of history attached to it because it's not the senators that left it's the nationals this was a new franchise and when you think about the two people that you think of right away ryan zimmerman steven Strasberg. They're going to retire as Washington Nationals, and I think that's a cool point to bring up because Bryce Harper, he was a big part of this franchise. He's going to retire a Philly, and people are going to remember him ultimately as a Philadelphia Philly. Juan Soto, big part, they're going to remember him as something else. Maybe you could say Rendon and Scherzer and those kind of guys will be remembered as Nationals, but ultimately when you think of the Nationals franchise, Mr. National, Ryan Zimmerman, was always with this team, and the guy who really put the Nats on the map, Steven Strasburg, is forever going to be a National. I think, that's, I think really that's really well said.
0: Um, I mean, a couple of things for me. Number one, going back to uh, you know your point that he controlled what he can control. I actually think he was underrated. Like I know that sounds crazy. I, I really do. Because I think people choose to remember Steven Strasburg more for what he didn't get to do than what he did. And I steal that from Barrys Ferluga. Uh, you'll hear, we should play that, actually. We'll we'll put that at the end of this podcast, Um, uh, maybe the interview that that Danny and I did with him. Um, But I think that when he was available, he was excellent. And people don't really understand how good he was. Uh, Here's how I'm going to say it. His career fielding independent pitching, which is like, the part of ERA that pitchers most control was 3.02. Scherzer's is 3.16. His is better. This is over their careers. Uh, His hits per nine, 7.5. Scherzer's 7.3, basically identical. His home run rate in his career was better than Max Scherzer's. His walk rate in his career is the exact same as Max Scherzer's. His strikeout rate in his career, 10.5 per nine. Scherzer's is 10.7.
2: Well, and real quick on the case per nine part, you know, yeah. the guy that's right ahead of him, Randy no. Johnson.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, but like you, my, my point is like the same difference between him and Max is that Max, His body didn't abandon him, you know, that his body didn't break down on him, that he got to do it every year and stayed healthy and go out and log 200 innings. And he was the ultimate workhorse. And he piled up about 3000 innings in a first ballot Hall of Fame career compared to Strauss, who pitched half that many innings and just couldn't stay healthy. So when I say he's undervalued, underrated, I think a lot of people just start the conversation with injuries and his lack of durability. Whereas the conversation should start with how great he was when he was healthy in 2014 when he had a sub-three FIP and led the league in strikeouts. And in 2017 when he had a a two-and-a-half ERA and led the league in fielding independent pitching and home run rate and finished third and second balloting right behind Scherzer and Kershaw as an all-star. And, of course, that year in the division series against the Cubs, he just shoved a couple of times, including in a game where he was sick the turning point of his career really over those last three seasons. I think people saw him differently. That's another thing I should point out. I think unfairly, maybe there was a perception. I was guilty of this early in his career that he was like, not tough or that he like, um, he let too many things bother him. And he just, you know, there was this Steven Strasberg as an orchid narrative, right? Where, the icy hot got to him that someone put in his his pants one day or there was too hot in Atlanta one time or he had a sweating issue or his hand was, you know, itching or whatever it was. There was always something with, you know, yeah. anytime it wasn't a great start. And I think this narrative happened unfairly that like he wasn't a bulldog. And so there was that perception followed him. So when he would be injured or he would walk off the mound shaking his arm, people would be like, oh, here we go again. And it's like, no, this dude's got an actual thoracic outlet. Syndrome, that's a huge deal. Or this dude needs Tommy John surgery and will be out for a calendar year. Like they're real, legitimate injuries. And I just think because of early in his career, when like if it was everything wasn't just so, he would say, oh, I'll shut it down and try again in five days. I think that followed him forever. When the truth is, he was actually probably a lot tougher and a lot more of a gamer than people think. Also, one of the great playoff pitchers of his era and statistically of all time 55 innings. And a 1.4 ERA. Um, his whip, sub one, like a reliever's would be. Uh, 11 and a half strikeouts per nine with 1.3 walks per nine in the postseason, about nine Ks for every walk. Uh, just a great postseason pitcher. And I'm sure you went through all the numbers today as you heard the announcement, like I did. But I look back at his good start against San Francisco and his first playoff start ever. Then he was not pitching in the playoffs for two years. 2017, I mentioned the two gems he had against the Cubs, the Nats and the Blues in that series, despite him starting twice, striking out 22 and 14 shutout innings in terms of earned runs. Then in 19, he's the World Series MVP. He started that with three scoreless and four strikeouts in the Wild Card game. Then he pitched really well at Chavez Ravine and in LA, uh, part of his two start sample in the Division Series. Then in the LCS, he struck out 12 and seven shutout against the Cardinals in the sweep. And then, of course, in the World Series, you know what he did in game one, prolonging the series, was invaluable, part of the reason why uh, he gets the ring and is the World Series MVP. But he always, you know, st- stepped up to the plate in the biggest spots, on the biggest stages, including, we haven't really talked about much, you referenced it, the debut, which I was there for, the first great night in Nationals Park history, other than the opener, you know, the first huge night in franchise history with all your big timers, your Bob Costas's and Peter Gimmons is is and... Carl Ravitch and all the, the anyone who's anyone in the baseball media nationally come into Nats Park that day. Nash, I remember Mike and Mike were like broadcasting when they were a radio show people cared about, like from the bullpen. I mean, the whole day was incredible and crazy and nuts. And then that night, Strauss makes his debut. And what are the chances the guy exceeds the hype? Seven innings of two hit ball and punches out, I guess it's four hit ball and punched out 14 with seven strikeouts to end it. He was one of the greatest non championship postseason. Uh, sporting events I've ever been at. It was amazing. The atmosphere was electric.
2: Well, and I didn't get the opportunity to be there June 8th. I was there June 18th, which was his third career start, and he set another record. Most strikeouts through three star- starts, which ended up being 32 strikeouts through three starts. President Obama was at the game because they were playing the White Sox, so he wanted to see that, but also wanted to see Steven Strasburg. And, you know, it's just... You remember all of that, and one cool thing about Steven Strasburg as well is you think about his rookie season and when he came up and he's this flamethrower that's a 100 by everybody, and he's got some other pitches, but you know he can just throw 100 by everyone, and it was something that really hadn't been done a ton yet in Major League Baseball. There were guys that threw hard but weren't
0: throwing 100 all the time. Good point. Strasburg. The average velocity was probably like you know three, four miles an hour less, and now everyone throws 100, but then it was rare.
2: Yeah, it wasn't something that people did all the time. And so then he comes up and does all that, and then he gets injured. And then think about the evolution to 2019, and this is where I think it's really cool with Strauss, is he was such a special pitcher. You know, you think about how Clayton Kershaw's uh, evolved throughout his career, where he's still a dominant pitcher now, where he's not throwing nearly as hard as he once was. That's kind of where Strauss went, where he went from a guy that was throwing 98, 99, 100 to a guy that was throwing 94, 95. And still incredibly effective, and it was because any count he could throw any pitch. You know, it's a it's a two zero count; it's a hitter's count. Here comes a changeup that you can't touch. You know, it's
0: a it's a three zero count. I'm throwing you a curveball. Toward the end of his run, might have been his best pitch. Like I remember just falling in love with that, and he didn't have that early on. You know, like to your point, at different points, I remember his curveball initially was ridiculous, and his slider carried him, and then all of a sudden he's got one of the best changeups in baseball, Mm -hmm. like it was nuts to see how he reinvented, you know, tweaked as he went on. It was, he, he was just, uh I think he was really sharp in a way that he didn't let on, you know, and part of that's his own fault. Uh, he, he did not have a big personality or if he did, I wouldn't know it Um, because he didn't really show it. I was around the clubhouse a ton back in those days. And Um, You know, at best, I would say he was unfriendly (laughs) at worst. You know, I I would say at best, I would say he was just a, you know, all business baseball robot at worst. Like at times he was kind of, you know, unpleasant and, and rude even not to, to kick a guy on a day that should be about celebrating him. That's not my point. I had great interactions with him too. Occasionally at spring training each year, he would do a sit down. He'd be in a pretty good mood and, and he had a nice smile and, After the World Series, we saw him kind of in the celebration come out of his shell a little bit. But I just think he never really – he was either nervous and anxious or didn't care much about the media thing, and I never took that personally. But I do think because of that, people didn't really get to know him all that well. Fans didn't know as much about him as some other players. He was just – he's a different kind of guy, and and there's nothing wrong with that. But I also think that mystery leads to part of – what is kind of a greater intrigue into Steven Strasberg too. He wasn't an open book. He wasn't Sean Doolittle, you know, who you, is active on social media and we know so much about, uh, there was a lot more mystery to him, I think. Yeah, no
2: doubt, and I think one thing that allowed him to maybe go to an extra level is the fact that when Max Scherzer was signed, Max Scherzer was the character. Like, you watched him growl on the mound, and he's stalking around, and he's striking everyone out, and he's screaming and yelling, and, you know, the 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 aura around Max Scherzer on start days is don't talk to him or he's going to chop your head off, and then you got Strasburg, who was allowed to kind of sit behind that, right? And he was no longer just the guy that everyone was focused on and he almost became a a true number two in that sense where Scherzer's throwing no hitters and striking out 20 and oh Strauss just you know throws up another three ERA on a full season of starts like that's kind of I think allowed Strasburg to get to that next level and then the beauty of it grants is when it came time to put up or shut up in the postseason they almost flipped roles where Scherzer's still the (laughs) same guy but Strasburg became the ace and his career postseason ERA is one and a half. Like you were saying, he was just a totally different guy in that time. And you know, there is some of that stuff with the personality. And again, it's nothing personal from Strass. I'm sure he's a great guy. He just, he wasn't as, he didn't want to be as well known. He didn't care about trying to have conversations and stuff all the time. And that's totally fine. And I think it worked out perfectly when you had a guy like a, a Max Scherzer there to do all that, or a Gio Gonzalez, who was a little more bubbly. So There is a lot of intrigue with it, but in terms of what he did on the field, anyone that thinks that he underachieved or he wasn't everything that he was supposed to be is just crazy. You can't control the injuries, and I understand that injuries sometimes lead to a guy being a bust, but he played enough, in my opinion, and he, he won World Series MVP. And the crazy part about this, Grant, we've talked about this with 2019 a lot, just the year in general, but so much of 2019 saved this franchise from so much scrutiny and craziness because just even in Strasburg's career, if they don't finish it off in 2019 and find a way to win a World Series before inevitably you know, we see the next couple of years with Stras and it's done, all of his entire career will be based off the what-if of 2012. And thankfully, we don't have to think about that.
0: Yeah, it's a good point, It really. I mean, the funny thing about 2012, just because he came up, which you guys that are real ones know what Toby's talking about, the shutdown, where he was ready to keep pitching and they decided to prioritize his arm strength and health rather than let him continue to pitch. And then, of course, the Nats got eliminated the division series against the Cardinals, everyone. Blamed it on the fact that they'd shut Strasburg down. But the fact is, the guy that replaced him actually threw six shutout innings. So <laughs> I don't know how much different it would have been. I guess he could have struck out more guys in his six shutout innings, or maybe it could have been seven shutout innings. I don't know, but they won that game anyway. But uh, don't let the the facts get in the way of, I guess, a, a good complaint or a good story, um, as some people still bring that up. But yeah, I, I will say, I guess for me, I don't have a problem with people who say, uh, that he could have done more or that you know there was a lot of meat left on the bone right or sure. you know it, that my my problem is the idea or that or even that like if they say he didn't live up to expectations which I think is wrong I don't think that's a terrible take but the take that I really hate is, That uh, he was a disappointment or he was overrated or anything that is other than like this was one of the best pitchers in baseball whenever he was healthy. And it's just a shame that he wasn't healthy more often. Um, But to your point, I did say earlier today, and I've kind of been going hard with this on Twitter, uh, that I think he's the most important national ever. Now, the main pushback I'm getting is from a lot of people who are saying, no, you're, you're wrong. It's Ryan Zimmerman. And it doesn't – I'm not trying to be disrespectful, right? I think it's a good conversation and a good enough debate. And if you guys have thoughts, feel free to drop a comment or, or hit us up on social. The One of the first real big storylines that the city got into, that the local media, TV stations, you know, we didn't have a FM radio station in Washington, D.C. that covered sports until 2009 when 106.7 The Fan became what it is. And it flipped from the guy talk format in WJFK in the summer of 09 during the Nats season, the year they drafted Strauss. In fact, the draft was one month before the radio station flipped. And I say that to point out you had the team 980, you know, uh, which at the time was was called something else. Um, But it was just a different sports town. Right. And uh, the coverage of the Nats was kind of a big nothing burger for the most part. And when Strauss was drafted, it was a huge Huge national story, which made it a huge local story. He was one of the most hyped prospects ever. It was at a time where, you know, we talk about Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens and some of the names in college baseball now that are on ESPN every night are celebrities. But at, that was the beginning of the prospect industry, right? I was hosting a show called Minors and Majors on Sirius XM that I still host now. And and this is not to pat myself on the back. I mean, I'm I'm sure the show was not particularly good at the time and hopefully it's better now, but I'm sure some people would say it still isn't good. Um, But I, I digress, but it's always been a passion of mine to talk about the minor leagues, but there weren't many shows like that. You had baseball America, you know, you could get some prospectus or whatever, would occasionally do some minor league coverage maybe, but there weren't all the, like this, the team now has a ton of blogs that are dedicated to the system. I follow accounts, Nat's farm and player development and, you know, um, next gen Nats and all these people on Twitter, uh, One Pursuit, you know, uh, that, that put out these daily updates and um, that that are invested heavily into the miners. That didn't exist back then, really, no. it, very, very little. And, and my point was just Strauss was one of the OGs, like in in that, to be honest. And so following him around was crazy. Like I went to Altoona for his first professional start ever, and sat right behind the screen next to a couple of minor leaguers for the Pirates who ended up having decent major league careers. One of them was named um, Michael Hughes. Is that a guy, I think, from the Pirates? I'm going to look this up. Uh, I think Michael Hughes sat next to me that day uh, in Altoona. And another guy named Jared something. I don't remember. But long story short, I, like I'm at that game, and there's national MLB people there, right? And so the hype started then, and he's in the big leagues a month later-ish and then that night at nats park and everyone in dc cared they didn't maybe they didn't care about the nats they didn't know much about the rest of the team but every 5 days they watched and they listened and they cared and and all of a sudden your your sports talk radio that was not about the nats at all would be about Strauss. and like to me when i say most important national with all due respect to ryan zimmerman he just didn't have that appeal Yeah. Um, Now, baseball fans knew he was a stud. He was a top-five pick. He got to the big leagues the first year. He's UVA. He's local. He's Mr. National. Like, I'm not trying to say anything disrespectful. Ryan Zimmerman's a dude. Like, I love the guy. I still get excited when I get to see him in person as a grown-ass adult who's his age. Like, that's embarrassing. But Steven Strasburg had a different appeal. Bryce Harper the following year, a different appeal. And so you add to that what that first start meant, what Strasmus was, summer of 2010. Right. Then you add that he was the guy that won World Series MVP, that he pitched them through the 19 playoffs. You you add it all up. And to me, he is the most important national ever.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Grant, when he was drafted in 2009, I was 10 years old.
0: Let's and I know I knew Baby who he
2: Tobes. was. I was a 10 year old without a phone, which I don't even know what phones were out then, but. I was a 10-year-old without a phone and I knew who Steven Strasburg was. (laughs) It wouldn't have been anything that you could Google stuff on like you can now, but I knew who Steven Strasburg was. Same thing with Bryce Harper. I knew who those guys were. And so, again, it's no disrespect to a guy like Ryan Zimmerman and he carries on the curly W like no other. He is Mr. National. He was a guy that represented this franchise so well for so long and it's cool that he was a part of the 2019 run as well. But, you know, I I think that Barry Sferluga who was on with you guys and we're going to play at the end of the episode as he wrote in the column for the Washington Post there are two nationals the nationals before June 8th 2010 and the one afterwards and you hardly remember anything before Steven Strasburg because it feels like that's when the national started you know that's just kind of how it feels It there was stuff before then but you can't outside of maybe two Zim memories because he hit a couple of memorable home runs before then outside of that, you can't name what was going on before then, because it seemed like Steven Strasburg put the nationals on the map. This is a team that had just come back and it it was a couple of years. And then they finally get this stud pitcher and it was something that everyone knew about Steven Strasburg and everyone tuned in to see him against the Pittsburgh Pirates in his debut and he lived up to it. So they continued to watch him. It was something that was a, a national spectacle. And so, like you said, when it becomes a national story, it naturally is going to become a local story. And so it brought people to the nationals that had cheered for the Orioles or, you know, weren't as much baseball fans anymore. And now all of a sudden you started to see this explosion that gets them to the playoffs in 2012. And you have the Harper craziness and all of that. But it all started with Strasburg. And so that's why I completely agree with your take. Because while Zimmerman's Mr. National, he's not the one that brought everyone back and brought everyone onto the Nationals bandwagon. That was Steven Strasburg.
0: Yeah, and I think the beauty of Zim is Mr. National, right? The T-shirts say employee number 11. Mm-hmm. Like He's just kind of steady as they go ho-hum. He's there. He's Ryan Zimmerman. He's furniture in the room. He's the same every day, right? I mean, Str- nothing about Strauss was just kind of in the room. Like... He was a star. He was a superstar. He was the Beatles. Everyone was there for him all the time. Couldn't just be one of the guys. And it was very similar to Bryce, the difference being Bryce wasn't here for the title run and is long gone. And Otherwise, you know, it's you could make the case that Bryce would have been in that conversation if he was still here and, and made a, you know, a bunch of plays and had a bunch of home runs during the 19 run. If Soto spent his whole career here, maybe he works his way into that conversation. But I think where Strauss has a leg up is he's always going to be the guy that authored the first major moment, right? He's always going to be the guy who is the centerpiece of the first night where everybody cared, the coming out party, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And honestly, not to overstate this, I, a diehard Orioles fan as a kid, my whole life, growing up, was still skeptical of baseball in D.C. Will this work? You know, Part of the reason it took me a long time to make the transition was – I didn't know if base like I would always hear people say things like if baseball can work can work in DC or stays in DC or whatever they had lost the team a couple times right and I remember RFK the environment was horrific the ballpark was terrible and I would go to um, games at Nats Park and I liked it a lot better but it was you know, it wasn't. It didn't feel to me, and maybe it was just because I grew up an Orioles fan. Like being at Camden Yards, you know, you'd be at Nats Park, and people are in suits getting off from Capitol Hill, like working deals, and someone's reading a book next to you, and I, I just hated that vibe. Yeah, and and I hate to to overstate this, but like I feel like a lot of that changed in around 2010 when Strauss got there, and before you know it, in 2012 they they spent the money on Worth. They've turned a corner, they're making the playoffs, and, and the rest is history, and now look what we are as a baseball town and and what this team has meant and how the whole thing got painted red you know, in several Octobers, including in 19, and there's no more questions not only about baseball working in D.C., it'll be here forever, but about this fan base. The one thing I think we do have to, to mention here before we move on from Stras, I mean, it's worth it. This is the story of the day. We're, we're longer on Strasburg than I would have thought, but I think we do have to acknowledge so there was a report. Uh, we're, we're recording this on Thursday night. Bob Nightingale of USA Today came out and said that the Nationals are going to be on the hook for the rest of the money. So there's some thought. And I know initially on my show, my takeaway was if he retires, they're going to get some relief on the remainder of this $245 million contract, seven years, 245, 35 mil per year, 105 million left the three years after this, because this is year four of the contract. And my thought was they would do some type of buyout with him for 50 million or whatever. I'm just picking a number. And that, you know, they would get the the rest of 105 minus that, they're saving, so to speak. So if they if they buy him out at 60, then they say 55 million. Nightingale's basically saying because it's fully guaranteed, because they didn't have insurance and this deal's uninsured, he's gonna get all the money and they're gonna owe him the money, every penny. I don't know about you, Toby, but that doesn't make sense to me because when you retire, you're essentially opting out of working, right? So I'm not really sure how that works. Like if right now today, just to pick a player, like um, if Lane Thomas retired, I don't know why the Nationals would have to pay Lane Thomas the salary he's expected to get next year. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like he, he would be saying, hey, I'm not playing anymore. Thanks. And then you would go, okay, cool. You're off our books. So I don't get if he's actually retiring, unless there's some weird caveat as to how he's doing it, or he had an agreement with the team. I don't get how they wouldn't get some relief, but as of right now, the report from Nightingale is the only person that I've seen have anything on this is that they're going to have to pay his deal.
2: Yeah. You would think that there's got to be a way since Strauss is going to file these papers, basically saying I'm done that maybe they could come to an agreement that Whether it's a number that there's a buyout, like you were saying, or, hey, you're going to get 60 or 75% of your contract, but you're not going to get the full thing, some sort of relief. You would think that there's something in there. You know, When you sign a deal seven years, 245, you'd think there's some case where, hey, he has to retire either because he's done or he can't play out the entirety of his contract, which that would be the case here. Then you would think there's got to be something in there that they could recoup some of the money but it doesn't sound like that's going to be the case. It's just a little bit odd that there's not even something where they could work together with Strauss or with Boris, his agent, and say, hey, you know you're not going to play these next couple of years under contract. Could we maybe pay you X amount of money and just say you know, we're even? I, I don't know exactly how it works. It's, it's, it's funky with, with baseball contracts and the guarantees, but it does sound like from the only report we've really seen on it that they're going to have to pay the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I'm waiting on more details to see how that's going to work. I'll prepare for the worst. And that is that, you know, they have to keep paying him the rest of the deal. But I'm still hopeful that, you know, that's not completely correct and, and there's some kind of accord that they can strike.
1: Dang, zoom.
0: The doom and gloom to start here. Strasburg's career is over, according to the Washington Post. And we and a lot of other people have confirmed it, that he's going to announce his retirement officially in September at the ballpark. He's made that decision. So that's number one. Number two, we got to talk Stone Garrett. And this was just so sad, man. Devastating. The scene at Yankee Stadium on Wednesday night was stomach-turning and gut-wrenching and tear-inducing. Uh, Stone Garrett, you guys know this by now, but if you're grabbing the pod to kind of catch up on recent action and don't know, uh, he was given chase, hustling his butt off for a likely home run that was pretty clearly going to go over the wall. He jumped up to try to make a play. Uh, His cleat gets stuck in the right field wall at Yankee stadium. And in a pretty freak thing, he goes to the ground in very obvious pain to the point where I think it was D. J. LeMay who hit it like before he even rounded the bases, kind of stopped and had his hands on his head. Like what's going on out there. He could hear stone Garrett. I think yelling from where he was at third base Uh, stone Garrett ends up fracturing a bone in his leg. Uh, He's out for the remainder of the year, but the scene itself was just tragic. You know, in a sports sense, it's the worst of kind of sports, right? Is, is, Seeing this guy, who's been a great story all year, laying there on the warning track, all of his teammates gathered around in shock, and, and they're all looking like they're on the verge of tears. And then as he was driven off on a cart, on a stretcher, uh, so he'd be stabilized, you know, he was sobbing. And you could just see, whether it's the pain or the fact that for 20-plus years he's dreamed of this opportunity that he's finally getting after having been out of baseball and been a real estate agent, and not only is he getting it, but making the most of, of it, second highest OPS on the team, has turned himself into an everyday player on one of the hottest teams in the sport, one of the great stories of the season. you know, all that's being taken away from him. And now he's got a really, really long road of, of recovery ahead of him. It was just, I don't know, man, I, I don't know how you got through it, but for me, it was, it was emotional to watch.
2: Yeah, it was devastating just to see him laying there, and I think you think of, obviously, Stone Garrett, the player, and the opportunity that he's getting, and now it's all gone, and hopefully he gets another opportunity to show because he was showing that he could be a really good baseball player. It wasn't just something that he could maybe earn a spot somewhere. It was something that he could legitimately play, and he was going to get the full opportunity over the last month and a half of the season to continue showing that, and hopefully he gets that chance again because he did show for the you know brief period that he got to be an everyday player that he can hit righties and lefties. So hopefully he gets that. And it was just so sad to see. And then I think you add on top of that, the guy that it is, Grant's like, just how strong and big and s- just Stone Garrett. You know, I mean, if you've seen pictures or you know who Stone Garrett is, you know what I'm talking about. The Sexiest guy is- man just, in baseball. He's like Superman like that. And then that's the guy that- is laying on the fields and That's is down point. with an injury. It's it just, it's so hard to see those kind of guys go down because you know, they can overcome literally anything except for when something like that happens. And so it, it was tough to watch. And then when he got put on the cart and then started crying because of just all the emotion going through him, it almost made me tear up just because you, you root for these guys, you know, whether it's going to be a nationals player or not going forward with stone Garrett, that doesn't ultimately matter. You just like the guy and the fact that he's getting an opportunity to live out a dream as a major league player and playing every single day and thinking, I don't know if I'm going to get that opportunity again. You just feel so bad for him. And I hope that ultimately he comes back healthy and can prove that he's a, a good player for someone, even if it's not the nationals, because you hate the way that it ended at least this season ended for him. You just hope that everything works out fine and, you know, it's a broken fibula. So hopefully it's nothing too, too bad and they can repair that thing and there's no ligament damage or anything in there. And he can get back and be ready by spring training and hopefully prove himself once again. But again, it's just, it's such a sad situation to see.
0: Yeah. I think really to me, twofold as to why it was just so darn, uh, you know, painful. Number one to your point is like his entire career has built up to finally getting this shot. I mean, it's so hard to get to the big leagues for these guys who are not great prospects or, you know, who, who aren't uh sixty grade tool guys across the, the board, right? And then you, you you work your bleep off and you get to the show. It's so hard to stay. Mm-hmm. And he finally has. I mean he was in the majors for twenty five games last year off and on, but this year now he's become an everyday player and he's 27 and he's getting the shot for the first time finally. And it's even harder to play well. I mean, his minor league career started in rookie ball in 2014, nine years ago. Like think about that path, man, 2014 stone Garrett goes, all right, hopefully I'm going to be in the show in a few years. And it's been nine years later that he's finally an everyday player. And he's getting a chance only because the team's terrible or was supposed to be. The Nats actually aren't. But that's why they they rolled the dice on him. And and because right now they're short on outfielders because all their prospects in the outfielder in double A and, you know, on their way. But now he, he, he says, I told you so. You know, I made the most of it. This is such a great success story. And that happens. Brutal. And on top of that, as you mentioned. He is one of the most popular guys in the clubhouse. We had Mackenzie Gore on our show uh, in D.C., Grant and Danny, last week. We played the interview on the pod. Um, go back if you want to listen to it. But we asked him, like, who's your best buddy on the team? He's like, oh, I love Stone Garrett. He's the guy I go out with. Like, we, we hit bars. We, you know, we have a lot of fun on the road kind of thing. You saw the interview with Mackenzie Gore, as you mentioned, in the clubhouse after the game where he was crying. And reporters just kind of had to leave his stall and leave him alone because he was so sad. Um, I think a lot of guys in the clubhouse, excuse me, felt that way, you know, and were, were overcome emotionally because it was stone and he's just that well-liked by the team, which makes it even worse and even
1: harder.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is such a tight knit group that if it would have happened to anybody, it would have felt like that, but especially a guy that's just getting a chance. Right. I mean, if it were someone else that, you know, for sure they're going to be a part of the roster next season and they're going to be in the lineup as soon as, they return, that'd be one thing. But for a guy like Stone Garrett, that's as well loved as he is, and everyone understands this. They're not naive in the clubhouse. CJ Abrams knows if something happens to him, he's gonna be in the lineup next year when he gets back. Mackenzie Gore, same thing. Like those guys understand and they're not idiots in the clubhouse. They look at Stone Garrett and they cheer for this guy. You know, as much as you know, you want to get a job and all these things, they love each other in that clubhouse. I think that's pretty obvious. And they understand the opportunity that Stone Garrett was doing. And they're his biggest cheerleaders that he's coming through on a nightly basis. And then to see it all ripped away on really a routine play, it'd be something else too if it were something crazy happened. But th- this is a guy that's just playing baseball. He goes to make a play on a ball, and all of a sudden his leg is broken. Like it's just, it's crazy how all of a sudden one play, one jump, and you land wrong or you get your cleat stuck in the wall and all of a sudden your year's done.
0: Yeah. Uh, the hits just kind of keep on coming for the Nats over over 24 hours between it's over with Strauss, which I think a lot of us were expecting and knew, but it's still kind of kicked to the ribs and the, the stone Garrett injury all jammed back into what was that? Probably, I don't know, 16 hours, something yeah, like that. Under, yeah. Um, which is nuts. Uh, on the field, they actually got a huge win on Thursday. and We don't break down individual games all that much, but it's another series win, and it means 9 out of 12 and I think 13 out of 17. Uh, th- they continue to play pretty good ball. C.J. Abrams, I thought, speaking of C.J., was the story of the series in that in game one, he had the go-ahead homer off the foul pole, Howie Kendrick style, and then in game three to win the series in the rubber match, he went two for five with a another huge home run late. Ian Alex Call went back-to-back. In a decisive inning. So now you look up, and it's 14 home runs for Abrams, slugging about 420. He's up almost 10%. Slugged 324 last year, slugging about 420 this year. OPS up 120 points, you know, from 604 to 721. So really, really good to see the power on the road at Yankee Stadium, big stage. And boy, did he admire both of them. The first one. <laughs> He kind of, you know, he stood there for a few seconds and watched it and threw the bat. I thought that was awesome. I'm all for celebrating and, and anything. So I love the second one too, but I'm pretty sure he's still standing at home plate and like the Nats have already gotten on the plane uh, and he's just still standing there by himself in an empty stadium. I mean, that one was such a long, like stare down that of the ball and his dugout, not anybody else. Uh, Davey basically whispered something in his ear and I would have to imagine He was saying something about CJ standing at home plate. I guess it's possible. I didn't see Davey after the game if he mentioned it or was asked about it. But CJ did have a ground ball earlier in the game that he didn't run out. And to the point where, like, Danny was sitting there going, you know, I wonder if they're going to bench him or do something about that. And Davey also could have just said, way to bounce back. You know, I stuck with you, way to respond kind of thing. But my guess is he didn't like the way he stood at the plate for a long, long time.
2: I'm really hoping that he whispered in his ear, Atta boy, screw the Yankees.
0: I'm glad you did that. I hate this team so much, man. Back uh, 22 years ago, we were playing them, and he just told a story.
2: <laughs> I'm hoping that's what he said. but No, I mean, he probably is saying, like, hey, man, there's a certain line. I think you crossed it, which I think Davey does a pretty good job of that because, like I, like you said, I'm a fan of that sort of stuff, so I like it. But I think that one was a little excessive, so I don't have an issue saying
0: – you know, Let hey, me ask you this because like, little, little. I'm not saying this because it's Abrams who I, who I dig. I mean, I, I would I'm pro celebrating pretty much universally across the board. Like I thought Prince Fielder stomping on home plate and all the brewers falling over was oh, the greatest awesome. ever. Um, I, I'd like like uh, a bowling bit with your helmet where everyone falls over at home plate. Like there's nothing you could do to piss me off. Having said that, if if based on the current unwritten rules, so to speak, and what is allowed and what isn't and what has now become okay. The fact that he was looking at his own dugout didn't stare the pitcher down or look to the other dugout, which is kind of the, the cardinal sin right now. That's that's clean. You're good there. Check. Yep. The problem was how long he was at home plate. And I think, again, these are weird unwritten rules, which is stup- stupid as it is, but he probably violated that one. I think you get like... 1.5 seconds and it was probably like 1.9 you know what i mean like i think he crossed the threshold it was obvious enough that when i watched it i was like oh my god he watched that one like <laughs> damn is he well, ever gonna run okay finally he left
2: you know? well when when cane he basically put his head down because he knew it was gone and started walking to the plate and the umpire threw him the ball and then he finally looked up it's like, CJ still at home plate? Like, what the hell? Like, I think that's what he took exception with. Like uh, like you said, I think that most people understand that you can do a little bit of celebrating now and it's not a big deal, but him just standing there for an eternity of watching the ball land, turning around, looking at his dugout, and then reading the paper, like, I think that might have been a little excessive, but I love it. I like, <laughs> We haven't had, the Nationals haven't had someone do that. I mean,
0: when was the last time? Like, well, I mean, Soto dropping the bat at first is is past that, like, sure. Threshold. So he was the one guy, Soto. though. And honestly, and that's why I loved Soto. There used to be a thing about the Nationals, if you remember. Tim Hudson was famous for calling them out, but a lot of guys did. That was basically like, oh, this team—they don't have stones. They, you know, the idea was like, I don't want to say you could push them around, tough guy style, but like that was always the knock. This was pre the world series run and and kind of max taking over the clubhouse. But I I say that to say the first time I remember a guy kind of being a jerk and getting under people's skin was Soto. And that's why I loved him so much because he was young and he didn't care and he was great and you can kick every rock. I don't care if you like me or not. Yeah, like They have, to your point, they haven't had a lot of that. And I don't think since he left, they've really, certainly in this era of like bad post world series, nationals baseball, there's been nobody like that. Yeah, I'm trying to
2: remember. Like, I feel like Bryce Harper had some of those, or at least people just oh, hated totally. Bryce Harper. Yeah. So th- there was Bryce, obviously Soto, and the Soto shuffles now become beloved. But so many people hated that at the start. But the Nationals haven't had that. So the fact that CJ's like, all right, I'll show you my thing. Like, I- I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do my thing out here. I'm a little bit cocky. I got some swag. Like, I like that. I- add a little bit of swag back to this team. I love it.
0: Uh, All right, so C.J. Abrams, homers two times. Had to mention that. Uh, Real quick on the minor leagues, um, quick uh, breakdown on some of the top prospects. So Dylan Cruz getting bumped up to double-A, that Harrisburg lineup, as we talked about. Cruz, Hassel, Lipscomb, Wood, House, batting one through five. Cruz playing center, Hassel and left. Lipscomb had been all over the infield, but a lot of uh, third and a lot of – not third, rather, because House is there, but a lot of uh, second and first – uh James Wood playing right and then House playing third. Uh, we've also seen Lipscomb DH a little bit as well. Um while Testado played first. But uh slower start, I would say, for Dylan Cruz. He he was on base four times in his first game. Last couple days have been rough. Sample is uh, still small. When I say rough, he's putting the ball in play a bunch, had a stolen base today, uh, but he just hadn't gotten hits. So a one twenty five average over his first three games. Um I'll tell you he was not hitting at all right now it's hassle. Uh, I put out an update on uh, my Twitter at Grant H. Paulson last night, I guess it was, on how some of the top prospects were faring. And on Hassel, I had tallied up the numbers, and he's 4 for his last 31 at the plate, so now another 0 for 4. So he's 4 for his last 35 at the plate. He'd really kind of turned it around and hit for some power, but he's really cooled back off. Uh, Lipscomb's still hot, took an 0 for tonight. James Wood had two hits, including a double yesterday, went 0 for 4 um he's kind of been fine but nothing explosive this week and then Brady House has cooled off a little bit hitting 310 now in double a but uh, at the minor league level i'd say nothing huge to update i like that Jacob Young hit his first triple a home run he's the one that got bumped up from double a to make room for Cruz former florida gator seventh round pick not a great prospect but you know hard working baseball rat it was going to be like a fourth outfielder fifth outfielder for years to come in the major leagues probably Um, he, Darren Baker, both went two for four at the top of the Rochester lineup day game on Thursday. One of those two guys could end up in the big leagues before the end of the year. I wonder what they're going to do with the stone Garrett injury. You know, who do you think, do you go the veteran route and call up one of the outfielders who's like a four a guy, or do you, do you have Darren Baker? Who's been playing a little bit of outfield, mostly an infielder, you know, go up. I know Jeter Downs got the initial call, but I'll be curious to see what they do the rest of the way there.
2: Yeah, I mean, you got to think that they're going to call up an outfielder because otherwise you're rolling with maybe Joey Meneses if he needs to and Jake Alou. Like, I'd rather have a legit outfielder behind those guys that are playing every day. So we'll see what they end up doing. But, you know, at the minor league level, nothing to freak out about. Uh, We'd love to see Hasselbe a little bit better. And the other thing, too, is, you know, you can watch Cruz and he might struggle for a little while. And that's fine because he's finally seeing a step up from the SEC. So I talked
0: to someone with the Nats. When he got pulled up, and I said, "Uh, hey, why'd you guys skip Wilmington with him?" and they said, "We think he can handle double A, and even though we think he might struggle a little bit with the huge jump because it's a massive two level adjustment, they're like, we know he's going to figure it out probably quickly, and we have all the confidence in the world that if he does struggle, it's not going to get to him mentally. Like he's past that. Yeah. So basically, they they baked in like it might take you know a week or two, but he's going to figure it out, and he's not going to get down on himself." Uh, Yo-Yo Morales did have a two-hit game, as did uh, Andrew Pinckney and A-plus Wilmington already, so good to see them in their first few games kind of getting their feet wet. Uh, one guy we haven't mentioned on the pod, did we mention Carter Keboom a few days ago getting called back up and, and hitting his home run? I think I that may think have been after we last talked. Yeah. Uh, so he had a home run at Yankee Stadium in his first at-bat in two years, game one of the series. Uh, he had two more hits today, so three for his first seven now at the plate, hitting four would Wouldn't it be cool if he was able to have a strong finish here. He's only 25. I mean, I, I don't have high hopes or big thoughts that he's a fixture moving forward, but sure would be a welcome, pleasant surprise if Keyboom was able to put together a nice September.
2: That'd be a nice redemption story as well. A guy that was the top prospect that we are all for waiting for. And then it just hasn't been the case. Matter of fact, I saw him play one game in 2019 struggled and then i was at the next game and he was gone (laughs) he was sent back down in milwaukee so you know i'd I'd love to see it work out because there are still opportunities around the infield i think maybe we did mention it where he could end up platooning with a guy like luis Garcia at second base or something like that or he at least gives you some third base until you get brady house up there something like that but He's going to have an opportunity, and it's kind of cool to see him come through. So hopefully, he can continue to do that. that. If he does that for the rest of the year, hopefully, you know he can find something. But it's been cool to see him back at the big league level. Gives you another guy that you're kind of dialed in, and see how he does.
0: Yeah. The other thing they could do, as I think about it, is maybe Jake Alou plays a lot more left field. Uh, You know, Stone Garrett would traditionally play right, but he would play both corners. I mean, you could have Lane Thomas and Alex Cole and Jake Alou line up in the outfield for a good chunk of whatever's ahead, too, if they, they didn't want to make necessarily a move where they're bringing someone up to play every day, if they don't think there's an outfielder ready you know, at the minor league level. Um, last thing we should mention, and then we'll get final thoughts. Mike Rizzo. The, the, we talked on the pod. Uh, it was a big reaction to um, Davey getting his extension, and the big story when we talked a few days ago was that Rizzo was on the verge of his. Well, he hasn't signed it yet. It doesn't seem like it's quite, imminent, like a lot of people thought. And now you've got all these rumors after the White Sox. The timing is pretty odd here. He started his career in Chicago with the White Sox. He's from Chicago. Has a relationship with Jerry Reinsdorf. They have blown out their president, Kenny Williams, and their general manager, Rick Hahn. It sounds like they want Chris Getz in-house to be the GM, but they're going to go maybe externally, possibly for the president. Could be Dayton Moore. He seems to be the leader in the clubhouse. But did you see the report tonight from uh, John Paul Morosi? Yeah. Of I think he's FSN and MLB Network Radio, but he said basically um, there's talk in the industry that Mike Rizzo to the White Sox is definitely a possibility. I just wanted to get your thought on that.
2: Yeah, I don't love that. I don't. I, I kind of had, and you've seen various speculation. Obviously, he was on with the junkies here on 106.7, and he kind of poo-pooed some of the stuff with the contract and talked about Davey, but didn't really talk about his own stuff. And then, you know, that obviously starts a lot of speculation. And then you had Barry's for on with you and you'll hear that interview at the end here. And he kind of was like, Oh, I think he ends up back in DC. So I was kind of like, all right, I can kind of put that to rest. And then John Morosi puts out the idea that maybe he does end up going to the White Sox. So kind of going back and forth. I don't love that. I would love to just know that he's going to be locked in here because we had this discussion on the reaction pod. Like, if there was one guy I was going to stand on the table for, I like Davey, but it was going to be Rizzo. So right. I would love to have Rizzo back. But
0: you know, it's also it's, super weird, too, God. I think, if you go hire a GM now and you go, your manager's Davey Martinez. Like, yeah, exactly. that's not how it's supposed to work. To me, by getting Davey done, it meant they felt real good that it's going to be a package deal. Because otherwise, why in the heck would you be hiring a GM? Who you're telling you just gave a two or maybe a three year deal to a manager. Like, that's weird. Just I just don't too. see it. Go it, ahead. It's,
2: sorry. it's just odd, too, that the reporting with that is they're close and you don't generally hear they're close and then hear other names of other teams just start popping up. Like, right. I think what changed everything,
0: though, remember when they were close, like the White Sox had not fired everybody yet. Yeah. That happened after. And I think just because it was the White Sox, I think if it was the, I'm just picking random teams, but like if the Yankees blew out Cashman and his staff or something, I don't think you would have heard right away like Rizzo, but like he's from Chicago. He worked there. Reinsdorf and his dad worked together for a long time. You you know, like I think the ties are what made it like some dot connecting and interesting. Um, I just don't see him leaving for there. I think it's a bad job. And maybe I'm overrating how bad of a job it is, but I think it's a bottom five job right now
2: would you really want to leave DC where you've set up roots for a place like Chicago, where not only did they just clear house, but there's also rumors they might be looking at relocating to Nashville or something like that. Like I, I don't, I kind of agree. I think it ends up being a lot of speculation and worrying. And then he ends up being with the nationals and the same deal that Davy got essentially two years with a club option. I think that's kind of how it ends, but, it doesn't make me super comfortable that you're seeing all these speculation, all these things kind of going around, but I just kind of don't see him wanting to go to Chicago with all the uncertainty around the White Sox right now.
0: Agreed. I'll, I'll give you my Jason Bateman from the movie Air. I do not love it. <laughs> uh, I prefer that. Yeah, those weren't the rumors. I just think it's a bad big league team. It's a terrible system. You're talking about maybe a three year tear down, rebuild kind of thing. What you just got through doing here, like your rebuild still ongoing here is about to bear fruit next year when Cruz and Wood and House and all these guys get to the big leagues and you start spending a little money again. If not this offseason, the offseason after, like you're really going to walk after you did the worst part of the marathon. You know what I mean? Like that's the finish line up there. You're going to peel off and just start running 26 miles again with the White Sox. Just doesn't make sense to me. Now, if they paid him a lot more, if the learners went super cheap, okay, maybe I could be talked into it. But My guess is they go with Dayton Moore or somebody like that. Rizzo gets a deal done with Davey here, and, you know, they move forward.
3: See you later.
0: Barry Sferluga was on the show with us today. Here it was. Barry, based not only on that night, which was a seminal moment and a franchise-shifting evening, but also the 19 World Series run and some of the greatness in between, I think Strasbourg is the most important national ever. I've gotten some pushback, some people saying Zimmerman, others, you know, we'll throw other names out there. I think it's Strasbourg. What do you think?
3: I don't think that's a bad place to start. And I'll say um, a couple things. First, I've been scrambling and writing. I just followed, filed a column on this, and, and I hadn't gone back and, and listened to that. But if you – there's just no overstating – what that night was like um, and really no way, no event that I know of that, you know, was so hyped around one person. I mean, that those things so often, you know, disappoint. And this one exceeded the hype and, and not just because he struck out 14, because he struck out the last seven. And so to further your point, Grant, I, I mean, I just, the column I just filed which should be published in the next hour or so um, basically points to that night of June 8th, 2010 and and Steven Strasburg um, as, as fundamentally changing an entire sport in, in this town. Before that, the Nats were kind of bumbling. They always had a losing record. They seemed extremely limited in their possibilities. And after that night, it's not overstating it to say that anything seemed possible. Now the line wasn't straight. I mean, there was not just the Tommy John surgery and, and, but the shutdown as well. And then there were playoff disappointments to come. It wasn't a straight line ascent to, to 2019, but in a way that makes the story richer. I, I, I haven't considered the phrasing that you just threw out Grant, but I I don't think that that's a crazy way at all to think about it because you know, I think Zimmerman's extremely important and very unique in what he represented because he was the first pick at the, in franchise history when after they moved, and he signed two extensions here, and he saw it through, and, and there's a uniqueness to that. But But people outside of Washington don't really know who Ryan Zimmerman was and why we would consider him important here. I think baseball fans know that night and then the night in 2019 and what that stud right-hander did for a sport in the nation's capital,
1: Barry? Because of that unbelievable hype, I mean, people have kind of forgotten about it. But before Shohei, I mean, he was like a, a rock star. I mean, MLB Network was posted up wherever he was. I think on the road, they were selling games out to watch the you know a, a hundred-loss Nationals I went team play. To his
0: minor league debut in Altoona, and I expected all the Nats media to be there. National media, yeah. MLB was in Altoona, Pennsylvania. At double A Eastern yeah, League where Baseball. Tens
1: of people go every year. And and because of that hype, Barry, I think some people, I want to say underappreciate Steven Strasberg's career. I'd love for you to speak to that.
3: A thousand percent, Danny. And I think, you know, when there is that build-up, and I mean, not just build up from people like us, but like the raw ability was insane, right? Like he's hundred and the changeup is like disappearing and this curveball is like you know, 20 mile separation, I'm exaggerating, but only slightly off his fastball. And like, um, it seemed like he had the ball on a string so often. Um, so there were his accomplishments, his abilities, the way scouts talked about him that made you think, okay, this is um, the best starting pitching prospect since Mark Pryor or Roger Clemens or or pick pick a name. Um, it can get, you know, kind of lost in a career that in some ways is defined more by what he didn't do than by what he did. And I think that's a little unfair. Like he never won a Cy Young award. Um, that's fine. He made three all-star teams, not 12. That's also fine. He led his league in strikeouts once and in innings pitched once and win- pitching wins once. Like, I think on that night of June 8th, 2010, we would have been putting over unders at much higher than that and taking the overs in a lot of cases, cases, but I went back and looked at the numbers. He made 247 regular season starts. In um, The Nationals won uh, 154 of, of those starts. That That's a 623 winning percentage. It doesn't sound that great until you realize that a 623 winning percentage will win you 101 games every season. Like yeah. He was a guy who you were going to win with more than you were going to lose. And I'll throw one other stat at you, in those 247 regular season starts, he allowed um, and and throw in eight postseason starts, actually, Um, he allowed uh, the opponent zero or one earned runs 44.7% of the time. That is just he, he wasn't able to go out there 30 starts a year, you know, more than three times in his career, but when he went out there, he was so far, more often than not, borderline dominant that I, I think it's a shame that, that people would cast his career against, you, you know, think about what it wasn't instead of what it was, because what it was, was was very, very good.
0: That's a great way to say it. I have not had those words come to me, but that's why you're Barrys Spaluga of the Washington Post and you're a wordsmith. But it's the, it's the talking about what it wasn't instead of what it was that chaps my butt a little bit. I mean, he was just such a good player. Uh, to, to dive a little deeper into what you mentioned about the playoffs, statistically, this is not my opinion, this is one of the great playoff pitchers ever. I mean, we're talking about a 1-4 ERA for him in his 55 innings. I go back to that White Sox series they lost, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the Cubs series they lost in 2017, Barry, where he had 14 innings. Remember the I'm sick, I can't pitch, and Dusty's mold game, or whatever that weird thing was, where he went and he was, that was the best I'd ever seen him at that point since his first start, probably in a big spot. It, and he ended it, up with 22 strikeouts and 14 innings in that series, and that's not even to talk about that he was their best pitcher on the 19 run and won the World Series MVP.
3: Well, for sure, and if you, if you go to that start um, in in Chicago, which in some ways was teed up to be a low point for the Nationals as a, as a franchise, because they bungled the messaging. If you remember the game, game four, they were down 2-1, to one, got rained out, and that seemed to make Strasburg available on his regular um, turn. And and Dusty Baker, for some reason, went against how the Nationals had discussed it and said, we're going to start Tanner Roark tomorrow. And it just looked like kind of dysfunction. And and remember, too,
0: I'm sure you, you recall the same way I did. Maybe you don't. Tell me if not. But at that time, there was still this like, Steven Strasburg isn't tough. He's thing. the orchid. And it was Absolutely. like, wait, now everyone was killing him because it's the biggest game of the year, and he's not going to pitch. He ended up doing a give me the damn ball thing, and he shoved it up the Cubs' butt. But you know, like that—that that was the story. It was like, oh, this guy doesn't want to pitch, and that was just not the case.
3: It wasn't the case, and it was, but it was the narrative overnight. Like, I—I I, I mean, I was in Chicago, and I remember, like, you know, watching both ESPN and the MLB Network, and like, all these former players were like. I, I'm not going to be able to look this guy in the eye tomorrow if, if Tanner Roark is going out to pitch. And it just it just got away from them. But then when he took the ball, like the Cubs just had no chance. That game was very, very tight. But I think that that did transform um, that idea that uh, he doesn't want to, to do this. What I learned over time, and I think part of this is a little bit self-inflicted because um, Steven was – you know, at worst, painfully shy when he arrived as a 21 year old um, was very, very guarded. And for years, you know, I would be in that clubhouse, um, you know, as the national baseball writer or whatever. And, and he would kind of walk by like staring straight ahead and, and not make eye contact and not even do, you had like no chance of chit chat. And the, I don't care about that in terms of my interaction with them. Like it, it's not that big of a deal, but he kind of actively participated in not allowing the fan base to really know him as a person, as we felt like you know we'd known Ryan Zimmerman or Max Scherzer or Sean Doolittle or or these guys who just kind of e- easily fall into telling stories and talking about the game. That was never Stephen, and so I mean I I had this interview with him in spring 2020 before things um, shut down with the pandemic. And he was like, yeah, I've just kind of had to come to terms with that. Like, that's basically, he said, that's my resting bitch face, right? Like, I just, that's my countenance, and I look angry, and I'm not angry, but, you know. um, So all of that makes him a very complicated person. But in the end, what you're left with is this guy didn't give out, his body gave out. And there's a big distinction there, because it kills him that he's going to be associated with what is inarguably arguably one of the worst contracts in the history of the sport, because he made eight appearances in a seven year, $245 million deal. That's not his fault, but he's it, it eats at him that anybody could think that it, that it is. And I, I just, I feel, I hope when he speaks to the media in early September and therefore to the public, that he's able to convey how much he didn't want this to be the end that, that, I, I don't think he should feel bad, but I think people will hear how bad he feels.
1: Uh, two things come to mind. One, Grant and I were both on the business end of that RBF a few different times over, spring training or otherwise. And two, I did not have in the office pool for Verluga dropping... Resting bitch face in <laughs> interview with us this afternoon, but it's very appropriate, Barry. I think you're right on point about it. Uh, and Barry's for with us here, talking Steven Strasburg on GD. So I think that seminal moment that we talked about, that Cubs series, that first game, by the way, that they lost that he pitched in, took a no-hitter into the sixth and was just almost every bit as dominant post-error, a couple hits, and, and then they end up losing that game. But before that, remember there were some issues, not necessarily health wise, Barry. Remember, you know, an error behind him and he would sort of snowball and melt down a little bit. The the I just put it in quotation marks, the icy hot incident or whatever that was. You know, it was like at times that reputation of him being a fragile little orchid because the wind wasn't blowing in the right direction, or he didn't warm up a certain way, or the sweat was too much on his right hand, whatever that was, it was always seemed to be something for a while. I think that was there. I'd love you to talk about that, but then when did he graduate from that in your mind?
3: Yeah, no, I think you're right, and I think body language had a lot to do with it. And and take a, take a, away like how his general countenance was, but there there would you know when there was an error, or a ball fell in, like the slumped shoulders thing became very real, and that that just doesn't play well um, in the clubhouse, and it doesn't very well absolve him of all the kind. You know, he he contributed to his reputation as, as being fragile. Um, And that, that made him susceptible to the kind of stuff that, that, that night, it seemed like he wasn't going to take the ball in Chicago because people were like, well, you know, everything's not perfectly aligned. This guy's not going to pitch. And, and it just, it wasn't the case in that um, in that instance, but he had in a way laid the groundwork for his own commitment his own toughness to be questioned if that makes, so there's legitimate injuries. um, And then there's that kind of way he carried himself for a while. And that all, I mean, it's a very, very complicated equation that, that went into it. And I I think the answer to the question, Danny, like when did it turn was the night in, in Chicago, or the day in Chicago, the afternoon in Chicago, when it was cold, it was miserable. He went out there and shoved. um, Michael A. Taylor hit the grand slam that gave him some breathing room. And then, you know, I mean, he pitched six times in the postseason in um, 2019, including out of re- in relief, three innings of shutout relief yeah. in the wild card game. Um, and the Nationals won all six of those games. Like, I, I, you know, that's not an accident. Like, the guy did it. He did it on the biggest stage. Um, and, and, you know, maybe his career is a fraction of what it could have been with full health because we know what he was like at full health. But I, I just – I just don't I hate the notion that he's sitting at home being like, man, people think I'm a disappointment. Cause I, I just I just don't think that's fair.
0: Barry Sverluga of the Post with Jesse Docherty. they broke today. If you're just jumping in your car that Steven Strasburg has informed the team that he plans on retiring, he'll make it official at a press conference at the end of this baseball season. Yeah, hey, I'd love to keep talking about how great he was and, and kind of what we're doing and telling stories, but there are two things I do have to ask you about. And one of them, frankly, is, you know, th- this is the the kind of the gross business side of this. But I do think it's really important for people to hear. So there's one hundred five million dollars left on this uh, contract. And as you said, it'll go down, unfortunately, as one of the worst contracts ever. But presumably by him retiring, I think they're going to recoup some of that money. Right. If they then strike some deal with him, how would this work? Would they just say I'm just picking a number, but like, hey, we'll pay you 50 million as you retire. And now they're off the hook for 65 million. Or how, how does that work?
3: So we're in the midst of reporting this. I think Bob Nightingale from um, USA Today has some some reported details that we don't have yet. But what I was told, I thought, I think erroneously, that um, if they negotiated a settlement that um, what fans should care about, that that thirty five million dollars a year would not count against the um, collective, you know, the luxury tax threshold, the CBT, And I'm told that's not the case. You can't just erase financial um, commitments that you that you've made. That that even if you end up paying out um, less than the 105 million um, that that remains, you're going to be dinged against the the um, uh, threshold. So I I I wish I had. So they're on the hook
0: for all the money, perhaps.
3: It seems it seems like it. Grant, well, why didn't I, they I, get
0: I, insurance on that deal, Barry? I think so, they probably well, couldn't, that,
3: right? That one. And this, I reported on insuring contracts. Um, I mean, it's go, going back like six or seven years, but it was it was around the first Strasbourg extension when he went down with another injury. And the reality is, um, insurance on these things is extremely expensive, and um, with a with a pitcher um, who has a history of injury, it becomes even more expensive, and so it's a risk reward thing. I also would say to fans and I've said this before: like the the insurance would matter to the learners who own the team, but if if the money counts against the CBT anyway, then in terms of like roster building and and you know the fans saying you should spend more. Um, because you, you know you're, you have bad money invested in Strasburg, it, it really, in some ways, doesn't matter. Like, yeah, could they like lower concessions or ticket prices because they're not on the because they got paid back from insurance on Strasburg's contract? I, I suppose you could connect those dots, but I, I kind of feel like that's almost if you're not the Learner family writing the checks for a guy who can't pitch, it, it's almost irrelevant.
0: And then the other thing, really quickly, because we haven't gotten asked about it, is the Mike Rizzo rumor mill churn in here. Still no deal for him. A lot happening in Chicago, although it looks like they could be going in a different direction. Anyway, do you think Rizzo ends up being locked in with Davey to finish what he started?
3: Yeah, I do. I think it'll be two years and an option. Um, I, I've been told that the timing on this, while not on ideal, shouldn't be um, you know kind of interpreted as a, a major problem. Mike Rizzo has been through this dance with the learners a million times. He always gets these really short deals. They always get done at the last minute. Um, I, I put the Chicago White Sox thing out there on Twitter the other night because I thought it was interesting. There's real connections between um, the people who run that fan- franchise and that town and and Rizzo. But that, that was, you know, I'm not one for throwing out much idle speculation, but that was me sitting on my couch saying, huh, isn't this interesting? And I think it is interesting. But I think ultimately um, the guy who's been the GM here since 2009 is going to be the GM for – a couple more years, and and um, and we'll get to see what what he started if it if it comes through the way the first rebuild did.
1: Barry, thank you as always, man. Enjoy the rest of your week. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. We'll Go you,
0: read the story, and it sounds like a column coming from Barry tomorrow. That was Barrys for Luga. As heard on Grant and Danny. Uh, final thoughts, too. Yeah,
2: I mean, all just kind of wrapping all this up. It's it's kind of a sad day all around with Stone Garrett news and. You have the Steven Strasburg news and all those kind of things. It's it's kind of sad with all of that stuff, but you know th- this has been an exciting season. Something that we didn't really expect from this Nationals team. We didn't expect this team to be where it's at. So while some of the news with the injuries and uh, obviously Stras kind of off the field stuff, so to speak, the on-the-field stuff continues to be great. I believe since the All-Star break, they're now... 23 and 15. They're sitting there, and there's they're only two games back or two wins back of the Yankees after the series. Like we've talked about, how exciting this year has been, or how encouraging this year has been. But I don't think that can be overstated. And again, that's probably why you know bringing it back to Rizzo. That's why you want the guys to stick around because of how much they've overachieved this season. I don't want to see anything change. I mean, this is a team that's only 10 games under 500, the same record as the Mets now. Like, it's crazy to see where they're at. And so you just hope that they can continue to build off of that going forward.
0: Yeah, it would be awesome if they can keep playing at this pace. I mean, can you imagine if they finish the year 10 under 500? That would be you know mid 70s wins that would be awesome. I, I yeah. would take the under by the way like so 76 and 86 I guess would be the number. So if you gave me 75 and a half wins right now, I'd go under that. Um, but the fact that the know,
2: line's up there, you know people yeah. were expecting this team to lose hundred games
0: and they're Crazy. not going to. Yeah all right, thank you guys for dealing with me being a little bit uh, quieter and like eating the microphone a little bit and probably breathing weirdly and heavily. Um, I got the in-laws in town and, uh, babies all over the house and everything, uh, is around me that is quiet and sleepy. And I'm just talking about the gnats with Toby really loudly. So, uh, glad that you guys were able to, uh, deal for bust and loose baseball. I will read really quickly a comment we got because we always tell you that we'll read your comments. If you send them, we want you to subscribe, rate review. So here is the comment that somebody sent us. From uh, B-A-C-H-33-K-S. What do you think that spells? Uh, Batch. I'm going to say batchix Sure. He, he says, as an AX fan of Wisconsin, I don't get to bounce my thoughts off of many people around here besides my wife, who's probably ready to chop her ears off by now. You two do a great job of being fair on both sides, remaining realistic and optimistic, while remaining critical with this rebuild, my phantom has only grown. Investing a lot more time into our minor system and the prospects says that we've helped him grow his knowledge of the pos- uh, the prospects in the system. My one complaint is that we only get two episodes a week. Seriously, appreciate you guys. Keep up the great work. What a sweetheart! Love it, Wisconsin. Yeah, find, too. That's a fantastic. Find list. that man and send him. Um, what are we gonna let's let's like paper mache some kind of uh, creation or something. We need to get this guy a gift. He's a sweetheart. Would an edible arrangement be too much? Uh, Perfect. Find this man. Get his address. Let's send this man an edible arrangement. Love it. it All right. Uh, For Toby and producer Darius, I'm Grant saying so long. Thanks for listening to Bustin' Loose Baseball Busy Nats Week. We are back at it Uh, on Monday evening. You will get another pod. Thanks for listening.